Welcome. Introduce yourself to us a little bit. Well, thanks, Jonathan. It's uh, awesome to be with you. Um, gotten to know Jonathan over the last few years. He's made some business out to Chico when I lived there, pastor there. But uh, it's a, just an honor and a privilege to be with you, prayer warriors, and uh, thank the Lord for the 10-day ministry. And really, uh, I, when I spoke with Jonathan a few weeks ago, I said, you know, you really ought to be connecting with the return. I think this is just, and he says, well, we've had some conversations. And then the next night, Paul says, it happened. So this is awesome. I think this is a great marriage and will help further both. But a little bit about me. Um, pastored for 30 years, uh, but my heart passion all those years was for revival and awakening. And I finally had to move out on my own and started my own organization. But within a year or so, George Otis contacted me, we had the Sentinel Group, and I began to teach in some of the things they do, and then eventually asked me to take over as a CEO, uh, I guess about a year and a half or so ago. So I'm in that role, but my heart burns for revival. So. Awesome. Larry, um, and a lot of people may not know this, but in the early days of just hearing the vision of 10 days, I was very impacted, as I'm sure a lot of us were, by those transformation videos that the Sentinel Group um, uh, has put out. Can you just share a little bit more about um, those videos, um, just some of the work that you all do even now? Well, thanks. Yes. Um, yeah, that first one came out in 1999 and uh, George Otis sort of stumbled into some of these stories and then thought this would be a great way to encourage intercessors around the world. And this thing just went viral and exploded. Um, uh, not always to our benefit. It was mass produced in China, I think, uh, illegally, but it still word got out. And, uh, uh, you know, within uh, six months of that going out, uh, we had thousand different inquiries and people of Washington had the same response. This is amazing. How can it happen in our community? You know, since then we've produced about nine documentaries and we also started a teaching part of this out of 15 years of research on how communities can uh, prepare the way of the Lord. How can you posture yourself and your community for a visitation of God. So those are really the two prongs of what we do is we still do research. We're documenting stories. We want to create, we have some great stories in the pipeline we want to produce that really encourage the body of Christ, what God is doing around the world and still doing, and to just light fires of, of, of passion and burden for prayer for the communities. And then to come alongside with some of the teaching we can do to help communities uh, prepare for that. Share, share with us, just for those who might not be familiar with some of these stories of transformation, share with us just one or two examples of what it means to be a transformed community as you understand it. Yeah, so when we talk about a transformed community, uh, we're talking about when every aspect of the community is clearly impacted uh, by the grace of God in such a way that there's measurable, observable, change that cannot be explained apart from uh, the, the work of the Holy Spirit, the power of God. So uh, transform, transformation is loosely thrown around for various things. You know, people go into a community and dig a well for a place that hasn't had water. They say the community is transformed. Well, certainly it's impacted the community, but that's not the kind of thing. Often people talk about transforming communities and they'll discuss about their activity. We're doing this, we're doing that, we're doing this. All good, 
but we're talking about an outpouring awakening that absolutely um, is measurable not only in terms of conversions, but social structures are changed. Even the ecology can be touched and transformed. I can tell you stories about that, but everything is shifted. Perfect, it's not a utopia. We don't get that till we get to heaven, but there's only one word to describe what it was and what it is in a community is absolute transformation. Some stories. All right, so um, probably one of the hottest spots in the world right now for transformation is uh, Fiji, um, Melanesia, Micronesia, parts of Indonesia. And uh, we documented uh, in um, early 2000s uh, the story of Fiji, but it has continued to expand and grow. Uh, George Otis was there just about, I think now about 18 months ago, not even that long, maybe less than that, but it, there were already 18 new stories. And this thing is just jumping from island to island, from region to region. And um, it, it is, it is dramatic in the sense that in these stories, just about every one of these stories has the very um, visible demonstration of the power of God on the land. Something dramatic happens to that. I'll give you one example, uh, which is pretty dramatic. In one place, um, they had gone through this process where in there they have what they call the healing the land process they use, and they had come together, a team had joined them, they had gone through teaching prayer, uh, lots of repentance, getting right with individuals as well as collectively as a community, uh, wrong, some of the wrongs of the past being repented of. And then they went into, as they all do, into a 21-day fast. Near the end of that 21-day fast was an island community. Uh, suddenly, the glory of God descended, and a 100-foot wall of fire came down to the edge of the water. And it, 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 it continued that way for about five minutes. People were on the sand, just their head buried before the glory of the Lord. And when the fire lifted, it looked like the water was boiling. Um, but what was there when they went out to examine it were fish that had been absent from that region for the past 25 to 50 years. So suddenly were there in hundreds and thousands of them, they collected them. And this is the kind of incredible demonstration of power that's happened in these areas in this part of the world as the glory of God has come over and over again from community to community. That, that's amazing, Larry. Um, give us one or two more stories. One of the things that really intrigued me when I first came across this movement was not only this idea that not only did the presence of God bring salvation and transform lives and human beings, but actually would impact the land. And of yeah, course, yeah. when you think about Second Chronicles seven fourteen, literally, it says, "I will heal their land." Right, um, right. That should be obvious, but I think as Westerners, a lot of times we're so far removed from the land, um, we almost think of land as a synonym for people or uh, human, you know, human culture. Um, so, yeah, I, I'd love to hear any more stories like that, just because I think it's giving people maybe a new framework. All right, so um, we documented a story up in Northeast Canada among the Inuit people there uh, around uh, Baffin Island, that Hudson Bay area, something like that, very remote. Um, I was even unaware that they had, um, when they were seeking the Lord, by the way, this is an area that had been incredibly devastated. Um, 
they said there was hardly a, a young girl that had not been molested by the time she was age 12 in that region. And uh, the actual Canadian broadcast company did a documentary because the suicide rate among the teenagers had grown to, hear this, 50%. One out of two kids were taken or attempting to take their lives. Anyway, the church began to cry out to God, and they actually uh, asked for some of the Fiji people to come over and help them and, and do the preparations, and they did. And I heard this story from uh, a, a man who leads the Healing Land team, what they call their revival preparation team in Fiji, named Sevanaka. And uh, Savi said to me, he said, yeah, he was there. And um, he said, before they had come, all the caribou in that region had disappeared. And they had a scientific team came in and uh, did a report. And of course, they attributed the leaving of the caribou to global warming. That's what they said. So Sevi says, we had, we had been there and God had begun to move powerfully and profoundly in the region. But he says, one morning, he said, I got this knock on the door early in the morning, boom, boom, boom. And he opens the door half awake and he says, there's a couple of Inuit guys with rifles. He said, come, you need to come now. You just see what's going on. He's like, you know, scared to death. What is happening? He goes outside and there are hundreds of caribou all over the landscape. Wow. They had all returned. And um, of course, I, what I like to say now is I now believe in climate change. If you will change the spiritual climate, <laughs> everything will change in the, in the environment as well. So, uh, and I really believe that's true. I honestly believe that much of our, our ecological distress is not due to man's manipulation, but man's sin. And that has caused distress on the land. And when there is the deep repentance and turning from God, uh, God will bring healing to the land. Now, this is not just some sort of um, magical touch of God. What happens is he heals the land and often brings back the the uh, um the kind of habitat that is needed to sustain the things that have disappeared. So for, I'll give you another example. In Manchester, Kentucky, another story we documented in Clay County, uh, about all of the elk had disappeared from that region. But after the move of God and the glory of God came into that region, um, it began to change some of the, the, the natural, uh, the, the plants and so forth. And now that area has the highest concentration of elk in Eastern United States. Uh, same thing in Lynch, Kentucky. They had a, some of their creeks because of uh, pollution and so forth had all the trout and stuff had disappeared. And now they're teeming with trout. Um, black bear had largely been decimated and disappeared, and now it's teeming with black bear in that region. And I've talked to not just, you know, some of the Christians about this, as some of the environmental scientists have said, this is true. And of course, they try to frame it in some other non-spiritual way, but it's clearly been a response to God touching the land after he moved and his glory came in among its people. So tell us about this process. What I mean, you all have studied how many instances of this kind of transformation? So uh, after the first story, um, if you, and some of you may not know George Otis, but he's primarily a researcher. He loves to research. He's very deliberate and he's very um, uh, great depth and he does his work well. Well, after that first story, 99, he said, you know, People ask, how could this happen in our community? He says, I'll get back to you. Let me research this. Well, he took 15 years to research. 
And over those 15 years, he studied in depth 800 contemporary stories around the world that he was aware of and 200 historical ones, Great Awakenings of the Past. And he was asking uh, one question in every one, and that is, what is true in every case? I mean, because he knew if there were things that were patterns, things that were true in every case, they would be God's ways, and then we could take this and help uh, teach this to communities and so forth to say, this is how God has responded over and over again in the past. And we believe that if you will understand this and, and begin to do these things, then uh, you will see God will respond because he's respond always to these things. So that, that's basically what we, we do now. So tell us about tell us about the findings. What did you discover? What did George discover in his research? And what are right. some of the keys to this happening? Well, you know, I, I tell people up front when I go into teaching, and probably nothing that I will tell you will shock you and surprise you. You kind of know these things. As I think George has said very well, our problem is not necessarily an ignorance problem. It's an appetite problem. Mm. Uh, it's not that we don't know some of these things, but we're not that hungry. But just to be clear, I think then this is an important, relevant thing right now. Obviously, you know that repentance is the center. It's very clear that any Prayer and repentance is about the center of any move of God. But the degree in which people have prayed, the depth of crying out and the depth of repentance has been very much linked to the level of their own personal desperation. And this is where the West has struggled. Let me give you a very key statistics. Of the 800 cases George studied that were contemporary cases, we knew of only five in places that we would call the West, United States, Canada, UK, Europe, Japan, we could, only five cases. The rest would be considered in third world, which says something about us. It says something about our struggle. And so, and that's, this is because of the materialism, because of the affluence, because of the many ways we can distract ourselves, um, it's hard for us to get to the level of desperate prayer that is required to trigger a move of God. And so this is where we battle. This is where we, we have struggled. And so I guess if I would underline anything, because in our current situation, this nation, I think the desperation level is beginning to rise. And, and, and I've said in the past, I said, the typical pattern we've seen in most of these contemporary cases is there's devastation that has led to desperation, that has led to transformation. Now, historically, that has not always been true. There have been communities, I can give you stories of that, where the desperate prayers did not arise out of devastation. They had a memory and a history of God's moving, and they had a good revelation of God and his holiness and his, his, his desire and requirements. And so that revelation created the desperation, not just the devastating circumstances. But it appears now in the West, and unless we have some measure of devastating circumstances. We cannot seem to be able to rise to that level of crying out to God that is necessary to trigger a move of God. So I'm just going to key on that phrase, necessary to trigger a move of God. Um, I think some people would respond to that with saying, well, you know, isn't a move of God something God does in his sovereignty? Um, you know, what do you mean by that? How does that interact with God's will, God's foreknowledge, His sovereignty. I just think that's something people are curious sure. about when we talk about revival. 
Yes. In fact, we even, during our teaching time, we take a whole session on that. So, um, <laughs> because that is a, a good question. Um, and we make it very clear. You, you, only God can ignite the fire of revival. We cannot make it happen. But it is also very clear that God in his sovereignty has given us conditional promises that if we do our part, he promised to do his part. I mean, we quote Second Chronicles 7, 14 all the time, right, for revival, and it is a conditional promise. If you will do these things, I will do this. And so we have not only many promises of scripture that say there are certain things we are called to do, and if we will do these things, God will respond. We also have the testimony of history where throughout church history, when God's people have done these things, God has responded. So that is what I'm talking about. Like I said, we can't make God do these things, but it's clear, he said, if you will do this, if you will prepare your hearts and prepare your community and come after me, I will respond. And is that assurance we have that keeps us going? Otherwise, we're just wishful and hopeful and wondering if, you know, God will God ever put us on his revival itinerary? We can only hope it'll happen. Yeah, that's, that's a great point. Um, you know, I think about my kids, I can give them lemonade anytime I want. Um, I am the sovereign over the lemonade in my house. But if I tell them, if you do this chore, you know, then you will get lemonade or, or whatever, you know, if you don't fight with your sister, um, then it becomes a conditional thing. Um, I might still water it down because I don't want them to have too much sugar, you know, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I, I think that's, I think that's a great description. Um, even just, you know, some of the scriptures, it says, return to me, God speaking, so that I may return to you. Um, mm -hmm. You know, some people are putting the ball in God's court where at a certain level, God is saying, no, I've put the ball in your court. How are you going to respond? And, 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 and then, you know, uh, that, that's what he's waiting for. Absolutely. It's, it's rarely, if ever, a matter of, of, of uh, divine reluctance. It's always human resistance that is the cause of not seeing God move. Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, Jesus taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Um, and it seems like that's the, you know, that's the prayer he taught us to pray. It seems like the father is willing to bring the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, certainly. Um, and uh, it sounds like in these communities, that's what's happening is that there's a greater inbreaking of the kingdom of God than we normally experience. Absolutely. That's exactly right. And it really gives the rest of the world an opportunity to see what it is, what is, you know, a more richer, fuller taste of the kingdom, which is still these great stories of transformation and communities that have seen revival. It's still a small foretaste of what is the full measure of the kingdom of God. But nonetheless, it is something that, that creates a hunger for what we have coming. I, I have been so impacted um, over the years by these, you know, by these films, especially by the Sentinel group. Um, and 10 days, I believe, is a God-given strategy for transformation. That's one of the purposes, um, not the only purpose, uh, but definitely one of the purposes. And um, yeah, so I, I just wanted to talk about uh, a little bit from a transformation perspective. How does that fit in with 10 days and, and with this movement, you know, seeking to see cities 
stop um, in kind of a Nineveh moment for repentance? Well, let me, uh, I'll back it up a little bit because, uh, and I'll tie this together with Jonathan Kahn's thing as well. Uh, honestly, I have been one who is in more recent years not got on the bandwagon for big events, largely because I've been to so many and people celebrate the event, but rarely measure the fruit afterwards. And you spend all this time, energy and money on these huge events and everyone's, it's, you know, we'll talk about what a great event it was. And you look around, did anything really change? But, you know, having read Jonathan's books, Jonathan Kahn's book, and, and then having him listen to what he's asking us to do. And here's the big thing to me, that it wasn't just a one-day event, that he was calling for people to prepare long ahead of time to begin to prepare their hearts, begin to seek the Lord, you know, and even if they couldn't come to take this time leading up to it. And that's why when I talked to you, Jonathan, I thought, man, you guys have been doing this. You have, in this very time frame, you've been calling the body of Christ for a season of deep repentance, of, of, of pulling away from the normal activities and routines to seek the Lord. And I thought, man, you guys need to marry because my fear was, and it still have some of that, is that the Washington event becomes just a standalone event. And apart from communities around the country, having led up to this, prepared for it, having been seeking the Lord, it'll just become one of those markers that we say, oh, that was a great thing. Well, what's next? And we are at an incredible critical juncture in our nation. No question about that. And uh, I, I see this, and I'm kind of now leading up to your answer question about the transformation. There is no, no real transformation whatever without deep repentance. And yet, trying to get, um, I'll just use American people, to set aside the time to disrupt their normal schedule. I mean, people want a revival, but they want them to fit into their schedule. They want to fit into their time frame. They want it to be convenient. You know, they want to call on God and then God show up with a towel on his arm and say, well, your revival's ready. Come and get it. You know, I mean, it just doesn't work that way. And, uh, and so this leading up to, and then the 10 days going into, if people will take this seriously, Jonathan, to do what you've called to do, say, hey, we're going to fast this time. We're going to suspend you know, watching TV, do a media fast, whatever it takes to get our attention focused, then it has the potential to be significant. If it just becomes one other thing to add into our already full plates, it's going nowhere. Uh, man, we should be friends, Larry. <laughs> um, I want to just encourage people that are on the call right now, um, go ahead and put some questions you might have for Larry in the chat. And um, Larry, I have seen, you know, we've done 10 days now since 2004, uh, starting with just me and my wife doing it, uh, just kind of asking this question, wow, can, can normal people do a 10-day juice fast? That was kind of, we're like, well, we're normal, let's give it a shot. Um, and um, so it's become really a pattern and an established rhythm, not just for me, but for a lot of people. I have seen two instances um, that I feel like were matched the pattern of what I've heard from your transformation stories. I just want to share one. I'm going to share it briefly and get you to comment on it. It was in 2008. Um, 
And just a second, we're having some background noise. We will mute that. It was in 2008. And um, uh, what happened was um, in 07, I got to hear some of these people from Fiji that you mentioned sharing about what transformation looked like. And, and um, at that time, I had this vision of 10 days in my heart, but you know, we hadn't seen too much progress yet. We'd done some things. And what I heard them share was that a group of people calls an entire community to shut down for seven to 10 days. And I was thinking, wow, this sounds familiar. Um, and, and then people uh, gather together for prayer. They repent of their sins. And then around the seventh day, it's not always at the same time, but at some point, there's a moment when God comes to town and everything changes and the atmosphere changes and the miraculous becomes very common. And so I heard these testimonies from Fiji. Um, and uh, that next year in 2008, we hosted a 10 days retreat actually in Northfield, Massachusetts. Oh, and they said often when God comes to town, it'll manifest in the natural through rain, not every time, but often there'll be a sign in the, in the natural of, you know, of rain. And so that year, um, we had all of those things happen at our retreat. Um, the first seven days, it was like, God, are you going to show up? We were devoting ourselves to prayer, to repentance. The seventh day, um, there was uh, this travailing prayer that happened spontaneously all over the, the, the retreat. Different people were entering into it. I entered into it. I was like, what is this? I feel like I'm in labor but I'm a man, this is weird. Um, it, was, it was not something that we forced, it was just something that started happening. And then that afternoon, the Holy Spirit was poured out. Uh, the presence of God came powerfully. Uh, many people were getting different gifts of the Holy Spirit. Uh, the love went to a whole nother level in the gathering. And then from that point on, the next three or four days, it was a completely different atmosphere. That night we had a sign um, and a, a young man got up and prophesied, God is sending rain in the natural as a sign of what he's about to do in the spirit. As soon as he said those words, the whole place smelled like rain. You heard everyone in the room gasp because they all smelled the rain at the same time. So I'm like, what is going on? This is weird. I went outside not you know totally clear sky not a cloud in the sky but sure enough that night the rain came just like in fiji and it brought a complete shift in the atmosphere um but so that that happened to us in 2008 to me this isn't just a theory this isn't just someone else's story i really believe this is something we can experience in our own cities um, and that's my hunger is not just to experience it in a retreat right but to see cities enter into this sorry that went no, on and on but it's a good story yeah. no, no it's interesting you mentioned you 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 are all of you seem to come under this sort of um intercessory anointing and then uh, historically if you read accounts in the uh, second great awakening they would often refer to uh the spirit of prayer would come on them they'll use that expression the spirit of prayer the spirit of prayer I said, well, what is that but I think that's exactly what you're talking about. There's, 
even in our revival preparation of Seek the Lord, we desperately need the power of the Holy Spirit to take us beyond where we've been before. You know, it's just like the level we're at is not going to cut it, but somehow God's got to do something in us. And often in these prayer meetings, exactly what happens, something happens in that prayer meeting that releases it. But apart from the work of the Spirit to enable us to do that, we're, we're helpless in that. We just can't get there on our own steam. So we're mostly Westerners on this call, not all, but mostly. Um, one of the things I find so compelling is how we're all, first of all, able to learn from our brothers and sisters, uh, not from the West. And that's both humbling and I think very compelling to us as well. Uh, but what would be your advice to us on how to enter into some of this transformation? Well, um, one of our mantras is that uh, revival is always personal before it's corporate. And the tendency is for us in our culture, and we've seen this all the time, when people talk about revival, they always talk about it as something happening out there coming to us instead of something is happening in us that's released through us. And I, 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 this is one of the problems I have when I go to communities and I teach. You know, they want to see their community change. They want to see God move in their community. And they're, they're so quick to skip over the personal preparation. Uh, there's a lot of presumption that goes on in their walk with God. And I guess I will just tell a little bit of my own story. I often do this at the end of my, some of the teaching sessions. When I entered into this time and I began to look at the materials that George had researched and so forth, and I was like, I'm all in. But I thought, you know, to have integrity with this, we're supposed to go through this time of real personal searching. I probably should do that. Even though I'm a pastor, I'm right with God. I have a walk with God. Everything's fine. But, you know, I think God knows when we're serious and God knows when we really want to hear from him about ourselves. And so I asked the Lord, um, is there anything in, in you that's offensive, anything you'd want me to deal with? And the first thing God spoke to me about <laughs> had to be the Lord, had to be the Lord, because this came out of left field. And it was this. God said to me, you never finish reading your wife's master's thesis, and she thinks you did. And I thought, really? Now, if I had gone to my wife right then and said, sorry, honey, I didn't finish your master's thesis, she would have said, oh, it's no big deal. But apparently it was a big deal to God. God felt like I was misleading her. And so I snuck, found her thesis, early in the morning read it so she wouldn't catch me, finished it, and then repented to her. And... Um, and then she was deeply moved that I had done that, and I really took the time to do that. So I thought, well, that's not so bad. Anything else, God? And this is my journey. And the next thing God did was a little bigger. Now, I'm sure none of you have ever had any family issues or problems in your immediate family, but my brother and I, I love my brother, but we had had a kind of a rough history growing up, and I had a lot of things that he, he was older than me and kind of pulled me into that were not good, as some older brothers can do. And uh, we're very different. And so I just kind of settled into this sort of, you know, my brother's different than me. He'd come back to the Lord and all that, but I sort of kept him at arm's length. And so um, God spoke to me. You know, I was kind of waiting for my brother to repent. <laughs> you know, that goes. <clears throat> and God said, you have withheld your love from your brother. You need to repent to him. 
And so I, at a time later, I went to him and as I began to talk about, I even had a hard time talking about this, it's probably five or six years ago, I just began to sob in his shoulders. And I said, I don't know if you noticed, I've kind of kept the arm's length. He said, oh yeah. And we sobbed and he has now become my close friend. God healed our relationship. Anyway, I share those first two to say this, because there was then a journey of that, of repentance for me on a number of things, is that this, at that moment, when I was reading all this material, say that I honestly would have said to you, yeah, I'm, God and I are fine. There's nothing wrong, nothing like that. But I think there's just something when God knows you want to go deeper and you really want to hear from him, he'll, he'll take you on a journey, a deeper repentance. And I'm not sure I'm off of that. I don't think I'll ever be off of that. And um, so all of that to say, before we rush out to say, what do we need to do in our communities? It needs to start at home. And we need to say, especially I think, John, uh, John in this, this season we're in, we need to really press into God more deeply and say, Lord, what is it in me? That is, if, I, if the revival, I've asked myself, if revival is dependent on me, is there anything in me that would be holding it back? And allow God to do a deep, deep work in us and then, then enlarge the circle, and then he'll show you other things. But I would say before you run into the community to try to unearth the historical sins or what the church needs to repent of, you know, if you will do your work, God will put people with you who will do that same work in them, and it'll start there. I mean, I remember years ago, an old evangelist named Gypsy Smith was asked that same question, how do you see revival begin? He says, draw a circle, stand in a circle, and ask God to revive everything in the circle. That's how you begin. And that's still true today. So I'll just leave it at that. That is so good. That is so good. And that's one of the, you know, I'll just give you um, some testimonies I've heard um, when people do 10 days. You know, um, this is one from 2012. Um, great young prayer leader. He's like, we were so excited to intercede and pray and um you know pray for all these big things and he said the first seven days god was just dealing with us in repentance we couldn't yeah. move from that place we couldn't right. move and and I, I think that's so critical because um there's no point in trying to have revival um if you're not you know ready to be a vehicle of it or to live in it so right. I, it's hard to argue with that and the other thing i would say just just as a general thing and i've kind of um, this is my sort of view. We, we talk about personal sin. We talk about corporate sin. Um, in the church, there's also a problem with what I call systemic sin. And what I mean by that is there, there are ways in which we have adopted and ways we do things in the church that I think could be offensive to God as well, that are harder to detect because they've been just part of the new church culture. And I'll, I'll give you one example, and I probably can get away with this with intercessors that I couldn't in other scenarios. Now, I grew up, I was a preacher's kid, so I grew up in the church. I know church ways. When I grew up, you know, the, the, the rhythm was that we'd always, we had a midweek prayer meeting. And somewhere in the 60s and 70s, and I do believe my, my anecdotal observation is with the rise of the church growth movement, and some of you may know what I'm talking about, all the... I mean, good people are doing missiological research and how the church grows and so forth. But with the rise of the church growth moment, there was decline in the church prayer meeting. Why? Because suddenly we have found ways that we could grow our church apart from God. 
Now we were doing it for God. We say we could get more people into the church. We had, and I would, you know, all the different things we're learning about how to grow a church and people grew their churches, but I'm sorry. If prayer is not central, something is wrong. And I'm thinking if Jesus is the head of the church and we're not consulting him, but we're looking to books and seminars and so forth and consultants to come in, something systemically wrong in how we're doing church. So that's an example, I think, that, that when, I think when we see a deep repentance in this nation, there'll be a deep repentance of how we've done church. There'll be personal, corp, there'll be those corporate things we've sinned, you know, things in our community, but there'll be some systemic repentance too. We can't do church this way anymore. We need to get back to crying out to God, making prayer the central thing in the church. And, and then we'll see what God can do, not what man can do. Don, that's just an example. I'm probably getting off track here, but now you hear my heart as a pastor coming out. So, No, I think that's, I think that's great. Um, you know, we had Greg Healy sharing last week about the role money plays in the lives of believers. Yeah. I think that's another example. Yep. Um, he had a great message for us about, are we listening to the voice of money or the voice of the Lord in, in our decision-making? And how listening to the voice of money was a form of idolatry, um, you know. So it was, a, but yeah. similar to what you're saying with church growth as well, I, I agree with that. Let me tell you a quick story too, because this is a lot of communities have very elaborate plans of how they want to transform their community. And George tells a story. It's a great story where he was invited to a large city that had um, generated an amazing plan how they're going to reach their community. And, um, I mean, they put together a PowerPoint. He said, George went into this boardroom, huge board table, this large mega church. And they sat him at the end, and all these leaders were gathered around. And they showed him this PowerPoint that George said was the best PowerPoint presentation he'd ever seen. It was amazing. They had the resources donated. They had key people in the city. They had everything. And uh, when they got done, you know, they all kind of looked down at George, you know, like, well, are you, they wanted him to consult with this. And he's like, are you in, you know? And uh, George, um, he said, well, let me tell you, first of all, he said, that is the, the best PowerPoint presentation I've ever seen. This is amazing, he says. But let me tell you what I've heard, what I heard. This is what I heard. He says, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to, and then we're going to, and then we're going to do this, and we're going to do that. He says, I just have one question for you. What do you need God for? It seems like you've got this thing in hand. Mm. I don't think they got invited back or to consult with them. But this is also what we see in our communities. They, there, there is all these plans. I mean, how we're going to change our community by doing that. I have these conversations. Pastors, sometimes leaders of communities have talked to me. I had one guy in Michigan, a great guy. And he was telling me all the great things they're doing. I said, well, this is awesome. The only thing I can tell you this is I have known no example in history where a community was transformed by initiatives. And it was just, you know, you could hear the silence as the air was going out on the balloon on the other end of the conversation. And he says, you may do it. Call me in a couple of years. We'll go film it. But he mm -hmm. said, I'm just telling you, this, these are not God's ways. God responds to his people who humble themselves and cry out to him and persevere in prayer till there's breakthrough. That has always been the way communities have been transformed and no other way. 
So that's not good news to people who invested most of their life in ministry and, and all these initiatives. Not that they're wrong. Don't get me wrong. These are good things that we're doing in our community. I'm not saying don't do them. But often I'll ask is, in doing all these initiatives, what's your goal? Well, we want to see what happened on those videos. I said, well, you're going down the wrong path then. So I'll leave it right, at that. Right. Right. I think that's a great point. I mean, I think um, it's one thing to do great things in our communities, and we should be doing that, obviously. Absolutely. Um, but we shouldn't conclude that um, based on our own efforts um, that are from top to bottom, our efforts, um, you know, maybe praying for God's blessing on it, that we're going to get something beyond what we can produce in our on our own. I think once we get to a point of saying, okay, we are utterly unable to um, bring this forth, that's then right. we start looking to God. Um, and uh, Greg is just saying, that's why self-effort is so closely related to mammon, um, which is a great point. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. money is how we do things uh, on our own in this right. world. Um, so I want to take a few questions from the audience. Uh, the first question, Larry, is what is your website and how do we access your materials? <laughs> I typed it in, but I don't know if it, it came up, but it's, it's just sentinelgroup.org. Sentinel I'm going to type group. it in right now. Yeah, sentinelgroup.org. And at our website, you'll have access to the videos. You can download them or you can purchase hard copies. And then also we have information about the journey to transformation, which is the teaching arm of what we do and some other resources there. All right. Anyone else want to ask questions to Larry? I was just observing in the chat your story about your brother was very impactful, um, you know, for a number of people. And uh, God was really seemed to be really moving through that. So um, thank you for that. But anyone else have any questions? Just put them in the chat, and we'll we'll address those questions as we go. So so Larry, let's just stick on that theme for right now. Um, what? How can we break out of self dependence and position ourselves? <laughs> it's almost like normally you want to lead as a leader you want to be positioned in a place of strength to be able to give answers to be able to provide solutions etc etc but it's almost like you're saying to be a leader in transformation you have to be position yourself in a place of weakness and not knowing where only god can help how do we do that Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and, and I need to say this up front. It's easy when you're you know, in a position like I am to uh, be falsely representative as the expert who has it all together. <laughs> I'm in this process as well. I sit with everybody else there that says, you know what? I struggle with getting distracted. I struggle with keeping a focus and fervent prayer. I struggle with all these things that everyone else does in Western culture. So, you know, any answer I give not doesn't come from one who's on the other side trying to call everybody over, but one who's in the journey with everybody trying to overcome the very things that you're alluding to, Jonathan. Um, one thing I do know, and I think everyone on this call would know this, when we cry out to God and say, God, I can't do this. I, I don't even know what I don't know. You know, take me on a journey. And if we're sincere, he will do those things. Um, I'll give you, you talk about money. My, my goal was when I resigned as being the senior pastor of my church in Chico, California, that I would stay on 
the staff and, and be funded by them and be able to do what I want to do with revival and have this secure financial base and um, didn't work um, for circumstances. I don't need to go into, you know, I was pushed out of the nest and had to raise my own support and do all those things. And I look back now and think, God, that was absolutely part of the journey for me to learn not to be dependent on the institution, learn to be dependent on God, and to really trust him for finances. It, you know, I'll give you another story in the midst of this. A year after, we're on our own financially, and we've got, we're doing, um, we were on like, um, you know, Blue Cross or something like that, health insurance-wise. And... Um, we had to switch over because it got too expensive, like it did for a lot of people in this last, those years during the Obama administration. And, um, and so we had to switch over to like a Christian healthcare, one of these, you know, group share things, which are great. So it was at the end of the year, um, my wife had to go in, uh, for a mammogram. Uh, they had some question. They're going to have her come back in January. We switched over insurance in January. She gets diagnosed with breast cancer. And at the same time, the new ministry healthcare thing says that we consider that a previous illness, we will not cover it. Mm. And we got a $120,000 medical bill in that journey. And we're like, yeah, but it was amazing because God had taken us on this journey and said, you know what, God, our house, our everything, it's yours. It is yours. This is not, this is, you know, we're, this is part of releasing things and part of saying, uh, you know, I'm going to depend on you, not depend on anything else. And uh, we had a piece, you know, uh, that said, I don't know how this can happen. Well, as it turns out, you don't know the end of the story. The hospital we worked with was incredibly gracious and reduced that $120,000 payment down to $9,000. Wow. Pay it off $100 a month for however long you want. Now, it was from the Lord. That just happened to be an Adventist hospital with a Christian orientation. And uh, I, I believe that was part of their mercy in all this too, and, and wanting to serve the Lord. Point being though, at the moment, it was a great test for us. This happens. How much are we going to say, oh God, we are truly relying on you. And we always say that until circumstances will reveal what we're really trusting in. Everyone thinks they're trusting completely the Lord until something's pulled away from them. And then you find out what are you really relying on? So point being back to stories, God will take you on a journey, Jonathan, of, of whatever it looks like. It'll be different for every one individual, but if we're truly crying out for him, he's going to take us on a journey to begin to create a deeper sense of dependency on the Lord and whatever that looks. This is just what the scripture means when it says, blessed are the poor. Um, because in our human understanding, we want to increase in riches and wealth, right? And, and control and capacity, ability to do things, power. Um, But God is saying, actually, my ways are the opposite. It's when you're in a place of need, and that's just what he says to Paul, my strength is made perfect in your weakness. And um, so it's, that's, that's why I think we're having these problems in the Western world, is it's very hard for us to say, okay, I'm going to voluntarily, I'm in this comfortable boat, um, it's not like Jesus's, you know, boat. it's like a, a carnival cruise line boat <laughs> <laughs> and I'm going to step out and start walking on the water. You know, that's crazy. 
Um, but I think that's exactly where we see um, these kind of breakthroughs that you're talking about and see the power of God displayed. It has to be in the place of human inability. Um, we have so much Bible, John. Let me yeah, just intersect ahead. this right here. Inter um, interject this. Um, as we've studied these stories, it's most often the catalysts for these great moves of God are not the big names, are not the high profile people. They are no-name people. They are people nobody knows. But God, because of their heart posture, humility, and dependence on him, are the ones that bring breakthrough. So often, I'll give you an example. And most people have probably heard this, some of this story anyway. But when the Hebrides revival that broke out in, in 49 to 53, which was one of the great, great awakenings that hit church history, um, People attest that to Duncan Campbell, that he was the, but Duncan Campbell makes it very clear that he did not bring revival to that. Place. He came after it already broke through. And it really began first with two old ladies, 182, 184. One was blind, the other was crippled arthritis, Peggy and Christine Smith. And they knew how to get hold of God. They were housebound. And it went from them to calling their pastor when God spoke to them, and then a little prayer meeting with their deacons and their, their leadership thing, and then God broke out through that. Nobody knows the name. Well, we know Peggy and Christine now because Duncan Campbell made them famous. But otherwise, no one had ever known those people. That's the God's looking for. Those are the kind of people he works through. But it's so contrary to our superstar Christian um, culture we have now that thinks it's going to come through the big names and so forth. It won't. It won't. That's that's so good, and that's why just in my personal evaluation of people, I try never to. And it's hard, you know. It's hard. It's easy for us to be impressed by outward appearances, but you know, when I see someone who looks not so great on the outside, I think, well, they may be ten, hundred, thousand times closer to God than me. They may have way more pull in heaven. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, it's true, right? It's um, one of the fun things in traveling I love in some of these communities is finding these gems, these people that you suddenly realize you are in the presence of someone who knows God and they have more authority and more pull in their community than anyone else, any pastor. And you just want to honor and bless those people. That's, that's amazing. And just a reminder for us to stay humble and also to realize our, our influence in heaven has nothing to do with our earthly assignment. That's uh, right. Yeah. Now, someone is just asking several times um, how they can get a part, get part of a 10 days this fall, a 10 days retreat. So, um, and I'm just gonna let you know, we're gonna have locations around um, the world that are doing this this fall. Um, we're hoping to have 120. Right now we have about 40 that are signed up. If you uh, go to 10days.net, you can see where some of that is happening. And, um, and um, yeah, anyway, that would be probably your first step. And I also gave you my email, Anna, so you can just send me a quick email. We can dialogue about that. Um, our focus um, with 10 days in this transformation dynamic, um, it, when I first saw the vision of 10 days, I thought this is going to be the year for transformation in America. Uh, yeah. It was in 2004. So I thought in 2005, we're going to see that transformation stuff happen all over America, uh, just like in the videos. 
And of course that didn't happen. Uh, <laughs> um, but instead this has become an annual rhythm that's like a return, uh, time to return to the Lord. Um, and it's almost like we're building capacity, we're building hunger within the body, but it's become a very uh, rhythmic thing for us. Can you just comment on that, that the element of um, rhythms? I know I had a dramatic, uh, painful falling experience from putting too much weight on, oh, this is going to bring transformation. And then when it didn't happen, I, ha I was very offended with God. But can you just comment on, on some of those dynamics that were, you know, like, being part of the process and then also some of the dangers of, of oh this is the big thing that's going to bring revival some of because i think that's a danger for us that are passionate about seeing our our communities renewed and and that's partly what made me tended to be cynical towards events because everyone promised that this was the event that would do it this was the event that would do it and then it doesn't and uh and then after a while you just go you, know, you get you can get disillusioned or cynical which is not healthy um, similar to you, when I went to Chico in 1992, um, at the end of, I went there in July 92, and my heart was for revival. God had, I thought, give me a promise. And so I had printed out these magnets, revival in 93, which people put on their refrigerator. This is going to be the year. So I get that, Jonathan. I totally get that. But this is the verse God gave me, and it's proven to be true. And I think it's a good word for all of us today. It's from Psalm 27, that great psalm at the end there. And this was the God gave me this promise back in 1991. I am confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Now, that to me was attached to revival, that God was going to allow me to be part of a move of his. But the second part was been, was been the byword for my ministry, which is wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. You know, and that's been the hardest thing has been the waiting. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I, but I'm confident that I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And I'm not going to give up just because I've been disappointed because this event or that thing, you know, seemed to build like a wave. And then we, we thought it was going to break into revival and then it just went down again. Um, it's going to happen. Um, there's a remnant of people that hunger for God and they will prevail in some way, shape or form. I can't say, Jonathan, we've talked about this, that it's going to turn the whole nation around. I don't know. But there will be pockets of genuine transformation and revival throughout this nation to create hope for the remnant of people who truly want to follow the Lord. That is amazing and that's a great note to just end on right there larry thank you so much for joining us today encouraging us and uh, just sharing what you've seen in terms of city transformation we really appreciate having you with us my privilege thank you jonathan